Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Friday, March 26. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Jan Fran. Hey, Jan. Hey. Today we're talking about a C word. Not that C word. We're talking about (laughs) consent. With the campaign to ramp up consent training in schools, we're going to go back to basics and explain how consent actually works. Conversation around consent used to be no means no. And that was mm. sort of like the entire thing was was that if somebody says no, you should respect that, which is absolutely true. But the problem is sometimes you say yes when you mean no. Yeah, so as part of that interview with Yumi Steins, we look at how you can teach children about consent and how it should be reflected in our laws on sexual assault. That's coming up in just a moment. First, here are the big stories of the day. The Prime Minister has been grilled on a current affair over his response to mounting sexual assault scandals, saying that he has learnt a lot about the issues faced by women. This has taken me deeper into this issue than than I've appreciated before. Where have you been? The Prime Minister talking to ACA host Tracy Grimshaw there, or should I say Tracy Grillshaw? Yeah, good question too from Tracy. Where have you been? You see here the pattern is that the women are always the liars. Brittany Higgins was a liar. Uh, Sue Hickey is a liar. Christian Porter's accuser has not told the truth either. No, that that is not the assumption. And I, I, I don't agree with your assessment of that. Okay. PM has also said he'd be open to meeting the former Liberal staffer and alleged sexual assault victim, Brittany Higgins. Now, this whole thing comes after Ms Higgins lodged a formal complaint with his office. She's accused office staffers of backgrounding against her partner. So backgrounding is basically when a politician's media staff gives information to journalists off the record, really without putting out a formal statement. I mean, usually backgrounding works in giving detailed information for backgrounds of stories. It doesn't always have to be bad. But in this case, Brittany Higgins has accused um, Scott Morrison's staff of basically trying to discredit her partner. She said this during the March for Justice. She said as the PM was apologising to her via the media, his staff was trying to uh, discredit her boyfriend behind the scenes. Yeah, the Prime Minister also used the interview to defend uh, the embattled ministers, Christian Porter and Linda Reynolds. They will continue to play a very important role in my cabinet. Yeah. (laughs) Not Mm. specifically uh, saying which roles they'll play (laughs) going forward. I'm waiting for this announcement. It feels like it's been coming for days. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, Linda Reynolds and Christian Porter have both been on medical leave for weeks. There's really massive questions as to their futures. Will they come back into their portfolio? Will they not? Um, There is a reshuffle expected to happen. We don't know when Scott Morrison will announce that reshuffle. Um, So we're all sort of just waiting to see exactly what very important role in my cabinet they will play. Um, In other sort of questionable behaviour news, Liberal backbencher Andrew Lamming has apologised to Parliament. Um, He's been accused of trolling two women in his Queensland electorate. He did apologise unreservedly there. And yesterday we brought you the sad news of the death of a Pakistani man in floodwaters near Sydney. Now there are questions why he spent 40 minutes trapped in his car on the phone to emergency services. 40 minutes was a, it's, it's a very long time in this modern age. They should have Um, have a quicker response. That was the president of the Pakistan Association of Australia, Farhat Jaffrey, speaking to Channel 9 there. Now, the young man, Ayaz Yunus, was driving northwest of Sydney. He was on his way to his first day of work uh, when his car got caught in floodwaters. Police are investigating whether a failure of the car's electrics led to Yunus becoming trapped. Yeah, meanwhile, swollen rivers continue to cause problems in parts of New South Wales and the large cleanup 
gets underway, supported by the military. And they still can't get that stuck ship out of the Suez Canal. The 200,000-tonne megaship Evergreen ran aground on Tuesday in this single-lane stretch of the canal, right? Um, It was blown off course by a massive sandstorm. The problem is it's now caused this massive backlog. Around 200 large container ships that are carrying oil, gas and grain, they've been backed up either side of the canal. They can't really go anywhere. I shouldn't be laughing. It's not actually funny. It's causing quite a bit of havoc. It is kind of funny though, isn't it? Why is that? It's almost like an episode of Thomas the Tank Engine or something where the trains get stuck. (laughs) I feel like it's it's an Austin Powers. What are those turns called? Three-point turn? Yeah, it's like a... Well, apparently the satellite tracking um, reveals that the way the ship has turned back and forth actually looks like a penis, so the internet's going <laughs> pretty mad for that one. I know, but it actually does. Like, I saw it and I thought, how does a ship... Be-? I don't know anything about ship routes, so I don't know how this ship managed to move in those particular formations, but it's very strange. I really hope they get it out soon. They're saying it could be weeks. And the Tokyo Olympics torch relay has recommenced in Japan. Um, the Games were supposed to be held last year and the flame starts in the Greek city of Olympia and then often travels around the world. This one got to Japan last year and then they had to put it on hold. Yeah, well, they postponed the 2020 Olympics to 2021. And just to give you an indication of the only other times that the Olympics have been cancelled or postponed um, has been during world wars. So that gives you an indication of how massive 2020 was. This month, the organisers announced that the Games... Going ahead in July, baby, but there will be no international spectators. Basically means that Japan can, you know, focus on the safety and the well-being of the athletes. They don't have to worry about the hundreds of thousands of overseas spectators potentially moving around the COVID-19 virus. 600,000 spectators apparently meant to be passing through Japan during the Olympics. Not going to happen. I reckon um, the world really needs an Olympics, even if it is only on TV. I think it's going to be a beautiful thing. Um, This torch relay has recommenced starting in Fukushima in Japan, and that's meant to be a symbol of the country um, recovering from the tsunami uh, 10 years ago. Fukushima um, is that area that had the nuclear power stations that was totally smashed by the tsunami. So it's going to start there and travel around Japan's 47 prefectures for 121 days, then they will... Light that cauldron, baby. Yes. Yeah, the games begin um, July the 23rd, rather. They run to mid-August. It's going to be around 480 Aussie athletes that will head over this year. So, you know, it might be just be something to look forward to. Slap your TV on, watch some sport. They've got surfing too, so that will be a good one for Aussies. There you go. Coming up next, Yumi Steins. Over the last few weeks, a certain... C word has been popping up. What we need to do is talk about consent. The national conversation about consent. Consent is a really complex issue. What about consent education? We're talking a lot in the country Mm. about consent and what it means. It's not a conversation you need to listen to women. (laughs) Yes, we are talking about that C word, consent, and with good cause too, because it lies at the heart of the reason why 100,000 plus Women, men, children hit the streets last Monday. So that march was specifically responding to the issues raised by the Brittany Higgins and Christian Porter allegations and the way they've been handled. 
and also that massive petition to teach consent better in schools. So today on The Briefing, Consent 101, what is it and how should we actually teach it? Yeah, that latest push for a better approach to consent training came from Chanel Contos in her petition. She's a 23-year-old former Sydney private school student who started that petition calling for consent to be taught earlier in schools. That petition's now got almost 40,000 signatories. Teaching consent when you're 16 or 17 or until when you're at uni, when you're out of school, it's like teaching someone to drive after they've had their licence for two years. Yeah, Chanel says that she wants education to start earlier and be a little bit more holistic. Now, Yumi Steins is trying to do just that with a children's book that she's releasing next month. Yumi's an author, she's a broadcaster, a podcaster, and she's collaborated with a woman called Dr. Melissa Kang, who some of you might remember a little bit more as Dolly Doctor. <laughs> I don't know if I'm showing my age there. Uh, this book is called Welcome to Consent, and it's aimed at providing clarity for young people. Yumi, welcome. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, Dr. Melissa Kang and I just felt like this was the most urgent issue facing young people. So there's a range of other things we could have written about, but this one felt like, come on, this really needs to be talked about. What are you trying to achieve with it? So both of us felt that when we were kids, nobody really knew how to talk about consent in a clear way. And there's a lot of kind of hazy areas and grey areas with consent. So we... It's it's something that requires a fair bit of thorough unpacking and very clear language. So for us as kids, we didn't get the talk and then we had our own kids and really had to wrestle with the lack of resources in having the conversations. So is there a particular age range that you've targeted with this book? Yes, um, from eight years on. Um, I don't think there's a top end for the age because everybody could benefit from reading it, including me. But yeah, sort of eight to maybe 18. The real severe end of the problem that we're trying to fix here is sexual assault, but the book broadens consent to borrowing a T-shirt or kind of rough play, which is essentially respecting someone's wishes. So can you explain how those, those the vast range of scenarios are linked and how you're trying to tackle that? Concepts of consent come up really early in your life and it's not about sex or physical intimacy early on. It can be like, do you want to come to my house and have a play? You know, and and understanding that you're allowed to say yes, but you're allowed to say no. And that sometimes communicating those things can be really tricky um, because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings or oftentimes you don't know the answer. And then it gets more complicated. So if someone said, can I borrow your T-shirt? You can choose and you think that you have a free choice. But what if they're more powerful than you? Maybe like what if they're a teacher or a senior person or what if they're more socially powerful? You might say yes, but you might feel like you wanted to say no. So in those ways, it can get tricky. The conversation around consent used to be no means no. And that was Mm. sort of like the entire thing was, was that if somebody says no, you should respect that, which is absolutely true. But the problem is sometimes you say yes when you mean no. So back to the T-shirt example, if somebody said, can I borrow your T-shirt and you're clutching your T-shirt and your eyes look scared and you're sort of shaking your head, but you say, yeah, that actually doesn't mean yes, uh, but you've said the word yes. So no means no is not a nuanced enough conversation. 
because the power dynamics are so complex. So it's about really understanding choice in the context of, of power. Power and also the fact that body language is a, a massive way that people communicate. And when you're a teenager, research has shown that a lot of times people won't say the word no when they're turning something down. So they'll, they might say something like, ooh, sure, and that's actually a no. Or they might say, can I think about it? Or they might say, I feel a bit sick. Um, so they're not giving you a direct refusal, but in their own language, they are. Is it tricky or challenging to sort of put all of these range of behaviours under the banner of consent? I, I did read some interesting concerns that were voiced by QUT education academic Carrie ann Walsh. And she, she said it risks narrowing a multi-component sexual violence prevention education down to one single component. Do you understand that kind of concern? Oh, absolutely. And I think she's responding to Chanel Contos's request for more thorough um, consent education mm. in school at a younger age, which is absolutely required. But the detail in that is that to educate people about consent, particularly young people, it needs to be a conversation that you revisit again and again. So you need a sort of a multi-pronged approach to the concept of consent. You need to keep revisiting it as the kids get older, Mm -hmm. updating your information, getting more, I guess, the word is explicit, as the kids get more adventurous and start um, heading into sexual territory um, and just, like, keep it going. So do you see your book as just being one of the prongs in a multi-pronged approach to prevention of sexual violence, perhaps? Look, if you only had one prong (laughs) to apply, (laughs) then at least it's one prong. It's better than no prong, but definitely it needs to be, I think, in the the responsibility of of a number of people, parents, obviously, um, but not all parents can do it. um, And I think schools as well. Mm. Schools are really useful because it comes under an umbrella of the culture that the child is in, whereas the family home can feel like a small island. Um, the school is kind of bigger. So even if the kid is like rolling their eyes at what they hear at school or hating school, at least they've got a peg on which they can hang an understanding of consent as representative of what broader society thinks. Mm. And they can choose where they stand in relation to that peg um, themselves, but at least they know where the peg is. And then they can find where their parents stand And their peers, which is so crucial when you're an adolescent, you really care what they think. And then hopefully you're having other influences like aunties and uncles, maybe sports coaches or your sports team having the conversation as well. So you're kind of getting a a broad approach. So we talked about prongs or a multi-pronged approach Mm. to tackling sexual violence. Here's one prong that was put forward by the New South Wales Police Commissioner, um, Mick Fuller. He suggested a consent app. So the basic idea is that, you know, before you meet someone in a you know date or an intimate scenario, you have this app and you can signal to the other person if you consent to being with that person by, I would imagine, pushing a button on the app. What did you mm. make of that idea? Well, he kind of got laughed out of the room within a few hours of suggesting that it's not a very good idea in that it would be easy to coerce somebody into giving the response on the app that they wanted. It's an undeveloped idea, but the app conceptually seems to assume that you can't revoke consent. So once you've given it, then that's it. You're sort of stitched up, which is the whole point of consent 
is that if you've said yes to say sexual intercourse and then halfway through you change your mind, that's actually okay. You're you're meant to be allowed to do that. So yeah. the, the idea of the app doesn't seem to imply that. One thing I did like about the idea, which I think is in the bin, but the idea of having the conversation before you commence the intimacy, so is presenting somebody with an option and saying, do you want this? That's mm. actually a really good idea. There's a debate in Queensland at the moment about changing laws around consent. It's been happening in other states as well. Mm. And it sort of aims to kind of raise the bar where someone legally has to seek positive consent or even enthusiastic consent before having sex, as opposed to the onus being on someone to say no. Um, How do you think we should change sexual assault laws so they sort of better reflect the reality of sexual relations and consent? Yeah, I think enthusiastic consent laws are a really good idea. Um, I think when you speak to sexual assault survivors, the nuance misses that humans can have a really varied response to being threatened. Some people will fight, some people will flee. So there's the fight or flight, but there's also some people might freeze. Everyone can understand that feeling where you're scared and you freeze or you, you lose the power of your words. You're scared you might escalate the situation into a, a more violent situation by fighting back or saying no or verbalising. And women face down that fear a lot. Enthusiastic consent, I think it scares people because it does put the onus back on the, the initiator of intimacy. It's really not that hard and it takes a bit of practice. So verbalising things like, are you okay with this? Or you've gone quiet, um, should we keep going? Mm. There are so many ways to sensitively check in and make sure the person is enthusiastic that don't kind of, I think people get scared that the moment, the sexy moment will evaporate, the the vibe will disappear if they check in, but it's the opposite. It's really kind. It's just normal kind of communication between humans who in that moment are showing care. That was Yumi Steins, who's written a book called Welcome to Consent. Yeah, and I think for the most part, that message is reverberating on a much higher level as well. The states are listening. Victoria announced just this week that its students are going to be taught sexual consent under a new mandatory program. It's going to be rolled out in public schools. Um, Queensland is also pushing for a consistent approach to consent. I know that the Queensland Education Minister wants that topic to be on the agenda at a meeting of education ministers next month. So it's definitely an issue that's going to be kicking around for some time and it's it's being listened to, I think. Yeah, it seems like almost everyone agrees that we can improve our understanding and our teaching of consent. Uh, the debate is now how to do that. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Jen. Have a wonderful weekend. Travis Toppin has actually gotten in touch on our Instagram, um, loving the weekend briefing episodes. He said in response to Brooke Boney, really enjoying the Saturday morning episodes and Jamila, we have another one. Who have you got on this week? Thanks, Tom. I am really pumped because this weekend I am turning the microphone back on Will Anderson, who is famous for uh, interviewing celebrities in his podcasts for being an extraordinary stand-up comedian who has been topping the charts since... I think it's a 25-year-long career now. And, of course, a bunch of people would know him from radio and also his TV show, Gruen. We are going to talk all things comedy. We're going to talk about Will's amazing career and also get a bit of a download on his philosophy on life. 
All right, that'll be really good. Um, I went on Will's podcast. Jan's been on it before as well, Willosophy, um, where Will kind of gets very, very deep. So it'll be great to hear Jamila going deep with uh, Will Anderson on tomorrow's weekend briefing. Hope you enjoy that. And we'll speak to you Monday. Listener.